Pastor Lynn just wanted to let, let you guys know that he uh, loves you and he misses you from, from this perspective up here. Um, he misses you in general as well. He's not been on vacation or sabbatical or anything. He just needed a break for a few weeks from, from speaking stuff up here. And uh, surprisingly, there is still tons to accomplish at the church here, even when he's not speaking. So he's been just working uh, above and beyond these last few weeks. But he will be with you uh, nine times next Sunday, and so that kind of makes up for uh, these last few weeks. And uh, yeah, um, well, by now, of course, you're all very much aware that I have a, a huge face, and um, it is—it's it's big, and it's getting bigger every day. Um, and my nose is quite prominent on my face, as are my ears. Very uh, prominent ears and my Adam's apple. Um, not many people have an Adam's apple that sticks out further than their nose, but somehow I, I was able to pull that off. Um, and so it's just, and thanks for zooming in all the way, by the way, for that. Um, but my nose and ears, very prominent on my face. However, just because those are the most prominent features about me doesn't mean that those are the most significant parts about me. A lot of times in our, in our culture today, we, I think, mistake prominence for significance. And that just because someone or something has a lot of uh, high presentation value, stage value, a lot of fame attached with it, if something is real prominent or someone is real prominent, sometimes we think, well, then they must be the most significant people. And while there are times where prominent people are very significant. There are also hundreds and thousands and millions of people, majority of people that I would say really aren't that prominent, but indeed are, are very significant and, and can live very epic lives. I mean, you think about for a minute, you think about Billy Graham, you think about C.S. Lewis, you think about Mother Teresa, you think about Martin Luther King Jr., these are very prominent individuals, um, even in, in the Christian arena. They've gained some level of fame and prominence, and they also happen to be pretty significant people. But do you ever think about um, Billy Graham's mom? Who was who she? Well, I don't know. Most of us don't know. Somebody knew her, but, but she's not prominent. But do you think she was significant? Well, certainly Here's a woman that, at least in some part, undoubtedly had a significant role in raising someone who went on to tremendous prominence and significance. You think of Mother Teresa's mom? Grandmother Teresa? I mean, I don't, I don't know who she is, but undoubtedly she had a very significant role in raising her daughter. But none of us really know who she is. There's a really cool verse in 1 Thessalonians. If you've got your Bible, would you flip there with me? Because this just so sums it up. 1 Thessalonians, near, near the end of your Bible. Um, if you hit the Timothys, you've gone too far. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica, and this is his encouragement to the, the people there. And I, I just, I, lo I love this. Look at verse 11 and 12. 
Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I love this verse. This is such an epic verse to me. And I'm convinced that if you lived out this life, you would be living an epic life. You would be living a significant life. It may not be a prominent life, but it would be incredibly significant to God and to other people. If you lived a life that was just a quiet life, minding your own business, working with your hands, that something about that is like putty in God's hands. Something about that is something that, that God can, can use very, very powerfully. There's a woman in the Old Testament that we're going to look at tonight as we wrap up this epic series. Because we, we've been looking at guys that got swallowed by a fish, and we've been looking at talking donkeys, we've been looking at prostitutes that aid in big strategic army battles. We've been looking at all sorts of people that were pretty epic in nature in a real literal sense and in real epic situations. But there's this woman named Hannah that I want to look at tonight that I think gives us such a beautiful picture of a life that is very significant and very epic, even though it's not really that outlandish or, or that spectacular, that just her simple, quiet obedience, her simple, quiet faith, the spirit of a prayer warrior, and how God is going to use her to give birth to someone quite prominent, is perfect in the hands of God. And so for her story, you need to go back to the book of 1 Samuel, and that's what will be the rest of the evening. That's back near the front of your Bible, if you're not real familiar. 1 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel were uh, originally one book uh, in all the ancient Hebrew manuscripts. 1 and 2 Samuel were all one book. It wasn't until they were translated into the Greek that they were separated into 1 and 2 Samuel. Samuel was um, an amazing guy. He was a very prominent figure in the nation of Israel. A lot of people would have known about him. He was a very influential guy. He was one of the great prophets of the nation of Israel. But he also bridged the gap between Samson, who was a leader of Israel. He was a judge, just like Ehud was a judge that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Samuel bridges the gap between Samson and then all the way up to when we get King David. And so from a leadership perspective, this guy Samuel in his prophet role really was crucial in a critical period in Israel's history that transitioned between the judges and the kingship of this nation of Israel. God looked down on this moment in Israel's history and knew that a leader needed to arise, a prominent figure needed to arise. And it was a tense moment in Israel's history. It was a very awkward, tense moment. And here's why. Israel could go to battle with some of the nations that were close by, Moab, for example, because they were pretty equally matched in battle. But... At this point in history, it's about 1100 B.C., 
there is an, a migrant, an immigrant group of people that is coming into Israel's territory that would threaten them pretty significantly. And these people's names were the Philistines. And the Philistines came in, were a significant threat to the nation of Israel because they were so many. They were just so numerous that, that based on that and that alone, really, they, they could have just rolled over the Israelites. But what was more was that the Philistines were migrant people from the island of Crete, which is just off of Greece. And so as they migrated into the Israelite territory, they brought with them all of the technology, military-wise, that the Greeks had to offer. So they came with a whole lot of weaponry that the Israelites did not have. They were also the first in the region to make use of iron, and they made the most of it. They made uh, helmets, spears, shields, all sorts of things that the Israelites wouldn't have had. They made suits out of chain mail um, so that if they were to go into battle, because they were so numerous and so well equipped, they really could have trounced the Israelite nation. And that, that whole deal then made the Israelites really potentially totally subject to whatever the Philistines had wanted to do. It's in the midst of this critical moment in the nation of Israel that God goes, I I need to swoop in here with an amazing leader in this guy, Samuel. But God doesn't start his salvation in this moment with this prominent guy, Samuel. He starts with someone that is significant, but not real prominent. And we're not even looking at Samuel's dad. We're looking at Samuel's mom, Hannah. And we're going to see how her significant but unprominent role brings about Samuel, which brings about the salvation of, of their nation. And so check this out. I love this, this passage. This is such a cool verse right here. First Samuel 1, right at verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramethium, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Isn't that a cool verse? Right that just it speaks to me right here. Well, what gets lost in there is, is who's the guy that we're looking at here? A certain man. God is always doing this. He's taking a certain person at a certain time for a certain moment to accomplish a certain purpose. And so he takes this guy, Elkanah, that's who we're looking at. Who it says here was an Ephraimite, which is who Jeff talked about last week, the Ephraimites. Except more, um, more honestly here in this, um, Elkanah was actually a Levite who was living in the area of Ephraim. And so he wasn't really an Ephraimite, but since he was living in the area of Ephraim, they consider him an Ephraimite. Elkanah, verse 2, had two wives... One was called Hannah, and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Right off the bat here, we get the picture of Elkanah, and he's got two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Peninnah has children that she has been able to have, and Hannah does not have any kids. Now, just a side note. The Bible never really looks favorably on polygamy. The Bible never really looks favorably on 
having more than one wife. In fact, there are many opportunities in Scripture where it takes to point out that any time you've got more than one wife, then problems ensue in varying degrees. And so while polygamy was going on at this point in history, the Bible does not endorse polygamy. And this doesn't mean that, well, okay, well, this was okay, so I should be able to go ahead and and do it. You're going to see right here in this story that there's problems that, that come from this. So, verse 3, year after year, this man, Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Shiloh, before Jerusalem, was really the spiritual center for the Jewish people. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in in Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. And you'd find out later if you kept reading Samuel that these priests were actually pretty wicked priests. Verse 4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to... To irritate her. Peninnah, because Hannah was unable to have kids, would just constantly make fun of her for not being able to have children. And I don't know if you can begin to imagine the, the pain of not being able to have children. But this would be rough. It's for some reason, when women are unable to have children, it's, it's like you're being robbed of something. And the pain that she would have experienced would have been very real, very deep, to not be able to to have children. And then on top of it, to make things worse, you've got another wife in the home who is able to have kids, and she's constantly rubbing it in your face. That would make it worse. On top of that, culturally, back then, to be barren was about the biggest shame that a, a a woman could endure. Because back then, for the man's name, the man's family line to continue through a son was absolutely key and crucial. Your son would inherit your estate and your name would continue. And that was such a big deal back then that if you were a woman that could not have kids, it would be a shame because you would not be able to fulfill the hopes and dreams and name of your husband. On top of that, the devout Jewish women, they would always in the back of their mind kind of have this hope and this dream that God would use them to bring the Messiah to the the, the world. And in the back of their head, they would always kind of be thinking, Maybe God will choose me. If I have a kid, maybe he will be the savior of the world that the scriptures talk about. And so to not have kids on so many levels for Hannah had to be a pretty devastating experience. And year after year to not experience the joy of having her own child had to just be killing her from from the inside out. It maybe doesn't carry the social stigma that it did back then today but it's still a painful thing for women today for couples today that have dealt with not being able to have children when they want them 
Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you know the pain that Hannah would be feeling in this moment. Some of you are going through that currently. Some of you, maybe that was your story some time ago, and after several years, the opportunity came for you to have a child, and God allowed that. When uh, Anna and I were about a year and a half into marriage, um, we were still unable to have kids, and and we had been ready to go and, and were trying, and yet it wasn't something that God was allowing And so after a year and a half where you guys, we wanted that so desperately. That was something that I can remember even way back in high school going, man, I can't wait to be a a dad someday. And after waiting myself to be 29 to get married and then a year and a half into that, just going, wow, maybe we're not going to be able to have kids. It, it It was one of the worst thoughts that I could imagine. It really bummed me out. And there were many tearful conversations. There were many prayerful moments that we were just weeping before God, begging Him. I mean, He knew the desire of our heart. There came a moment as we were just moving here. We had been here about a week, and we took a trip up to the Grand Canyon just to start scoping out what Arizona was like. And as we're driving back, we began to talk about it again. And we began to pray about it. We started thinking and we're just going, wow, all right, maybe this isn't one of those things that, um, that God is going to have for us. As we're looking at things right now, maybe in God's sovereignty and God seeing the bigger picture, maybe this is not something God will have for us. And, and that's okay if that's his answer. Because maybe there is something that He is going to call us to that we wouldn't be able to do if we had children. Because that's often the case. There there are things that maybe you wouldn't be able to do if you were married and had children that you would be able to do if you didn't have kids. It's the same for those of you that are single. Whether by choice or otherwise, This singleness that you're experiencing is not a defection on your part. This is not something that is going on in your life because there's something wrong with you. Perhaps this is how God wired you up, and perhaps there is something that God is calling you to that based on your singleness you could accomplish in that role that you would never be able to accomplish if you were married. So it's an odd thing, but something to celebrate. And how God has wired you up. And we prayed and just said, all right, God, if this is not something you have for us, then it's tough. But we'll let go of this. It was uh, about six days later and we found out Anna was pregnant. (laughs) And that was a cool thing. It was a really neat thing that God decided to bless us that way, to give us that gift. But if he hadn't, That would have been okay too. It would have been very difficult. And I'd hope I'd be sitting here saying the same thing. But that would have been okay too. There's a guy named Louis Giglio. And his wife's name is Shelley. They started in college ministry and did college ministry at Baylor University for over 10 years. And uh, had the opportunity to impact 
hundreds and thousands of college students in their ministry there. They then went on to start the Passion Movement, which is a movement of college students that are trying their best to live for the name and the renown of Jesus Christ. And they started these conferences that uh, still go on. In fact, we are taking 43 people from Cornerstone in two weeks for a week-long conference uh, in Atlanta where we'll be joining with 20,000 other college students that are going after Jesus that Louis and his wife started. So much of David Crowder and Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman and Charlie Hall, guys that wrote majority of the music that we sing here, uh, they're all part of this passion movement. And as they're kind of coming under the umbrella of Louis and Shelley's leadership, they've seen thousands of people worldwide whose lives have been touched by this ministry that they have. Shelley and, and Louis have never had kids. And I don't know them personally, so I don't know the pain that's been accompanied with that or not. But undoubtedly, they've been able to accomplish something that maybe they wouldn't have been able to if they had had kids. The reality is they've got 50, 75,000 college students as kids all over this nation as they have this very special ministry. But for Hannah, her heart was so desirous of this. And she, she, she was just really wanting to see what, what God would do. And it was still ripping her to pieces. So we'll find out what happens. Verse 7. It says, This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her and she, uh, till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. In, in an, a total outpouring of her soul in this moment, she prays to God, which is exactly what you and I should do in this situation or in any other situation where emotions are just overrunning us. To just take that immediately to God and say, Here, Lord, would you take this? You know my heart. You know what I desire. Would you do something about this? And she pours out her heart and she says, Would you remember me? Would you please give me a son? If you give me a son, then I'll give him right back to you. If you honor me in this way, God, then I will honor you and give him right back to you. I know that he was really never mine in the first place. I know that he belongs to you. So I will give him back to you for use in priestly service to do what you would have with him. He will be fully devoted to you. No razor will be put to his head. And all that means is that back then, if you were in this Levitical priesthood, if you were devoted to the Lord in this way, you wouldn't cut your hair. And it was an outward sign that you were in this priesthood. And so that's all that that means. And so verse 12, As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, 
and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. And Hannah replies, Not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Catch this. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. And that's a play on words there. Because the Hebrew word for Samuel in Hebrew sounds like the word in Hebrew for I asked the Lord. And so because they sound similar, that's just kind of a play on words. In this outpouring of her soul, in this passionate, fervent prayer that she offers up, God responds. And in a very epic moment, God responds in such to bring her this son, this guy named Samuel, who will be a great prophet of Israel. She takes the next two or three years to wean Samuel and then does exactly what she had vowed. She brings Samuel to the temple to be given over to this priestly duty. Now, the Levitical priests would normally serve only from about 25 years old to 50 years old. But she brings him in, brings Samuel in at about two to three years old and leaves him for the Lord. Look at the end of that chapter. It just says, verse 27, Hannah says, I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. You guys... The most epic thing that you may ever do in your entire life might be that you offered up a passionate, fervent prayer for someone else that you love. The most significant, epic thing that you could possibly ever do might be just to passionately pour out your heart in prayer on behalf of somebody else. Yeah, you think about Samuel, you think about Billy Graham, you think about Mother Teresa, you think about C.S. Lewis, you think about Martin Luther King Jr. You think about Rick Warren, you think about Bill Hybels, you think about Lynn Winters. I guarantee you what all of those men had in common, all of those people had in common, is at some point, I guarantee you, someone godly, fervently prayed for those people. And God heard those prayers and intersected in their lives in such a way to bring them to a level of prominence that God had called them for. But for Samuel and his mother Hannah, Samuel was prominent and Hannah was not. But who who was more important? 
Really? Neither. You, you don't get one without the other. The most epic thing, the most significant thing that any of you might ever do might be that you just raise your kids in a godly manner. You want to live an epic life? You want to live a deeply significant life? Then just be a loving father to your kids. Just be a loving mother to your kids. That is very, very epic in nature. That's huge. It may not be prominent, but it's very, very significant. The most epic thing that some of you might do in here is just shut up and mind your own business. The most epic or significant thing that some of you might do might be to serve other people in ways that nobody will ever, ever see. We may never, ever know your face or know your name, but that does not mean that you cannot live an epic, significant life. There are so many people right here in this church that are just these quiet, mind-your-own-business, work-with-your-hands sort of servants. You are living an epic life every single moment of every day. And I celebrate you. Because I know that God celebrates you. There are people right here on our staff that are that way. There's a woman named Carrie. that most of you would not know her name or her face, even though she's worked here for years. And Carrie is affectionately referred to as the church mom Anything that we have a need for, day or night, I don't care if it's something that is dirty or unpleasant or easy to pull off, Carrie will jump to in a heartbeat. She has a life and a ministry that is incredibly significant, although it's not necessarily prominent. There's a woman named Debbie here in the church that if you were to call the church office about nine times out of ten, Debbie would be the one to answer. And this woman has such a quiet, sweet spirit and heart. And she works like crazy to see other ministries succeed as she just constantly is in support of them. Not very prominent, but incredibly significant. There's a guy named Brandon that's right here in this church. He comes to Camber. He's in his late 20s and single. And he's one of my heroes here. In personality, he is not a prominent person. But he is one of the most significant people that, that I know. Any time that we have some financial need that we hear about within Camber or within the community or overseas... He'll step up to the plate and cut a $1,000 check here and go, hey, maybe this can help. Not very prominent, but incredibly significant. There's a guy named Johnny who is overseeing all of the custodial and janitorial ministries here at this church. Every single week, this guy tireless, tire, tirelessly and without complaining goes around and cleans this place and fixes things and builds things. He sets things up and tears things down constantly. This room right here, the chairs that are sitting here right now, have to get put out and stacked up and put back and stacked up about 40 times a, a week. 
All the different ministries that meet in here need a different number of seats and like things shaped differently. And he'll just come in with his team and take them out and put them back in. And sometimes he'll come in and he's already set up and we go, oh, we forgot to tell you we're not doing this and we're doing something different. And without complaining, he takes everything away. Not very prominent, but incredibly significant. In Greek culture, manual labor was despised. In fact, it was thought that the higher level of position in life you attained, the less that you should have to do physically. And yet, our Bible gave us apostles who were fishermen. It gave us missionaries who were tent makers. And it gave us a king who was a carpenter. The most epic thing that most of us could ever possibly do would be to live a quiet life minding our own business, working with our hands, praying fervently and passionately for people that we love, raising our kids in a loving, godly manner, and serving in ways that maybe would never get us noticed or our name on any list. And when you do that, I'm convinced that you will step out and live this epic life to which we have been called. I celebrate those of you in this room who are doing that. Keep it up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for prominent people in our lives and the calling that you've placed on them and how you can use them. But more than that, Lord, I thank you for those who live that quiet life of obedience that you're using in so many powerful ways that who, like Hannah, pour their hearts out to you that maybe don't have a level of prominence but have a very deep level of significance in your family and this family that we have here at Cornerstone. God, I thank you that you gave us the example first and foremost of what it looks like to trade prominence for significance. You of all people could have paraded around in prominence and yet you sent your son, Jesus, to humble himself, taking the very nature of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What an amazing picture that is of your example to us of a quiet servant's life that was more significant than we could possibly imagine. With your eyes closed and heads bowed, we're, in just a few moments, going to take communion. And so in the quietness of this next moment, I just encourage you to pour out 
your heart to God if that's something that you need to do, whether it's in joy, celebration, grief, or anguish. That you would perhaps pray passionately for someone that you love. Or perhaps you would begin to consider how God might continue to use your quiet, faithful, minding your own business, working with your hands sort of life in an epic fashion. thank you for the beautiful people in this room. Help us not miss the significant people right here in our midst just because maybe they're not prominent. Father, we thank you so much for the brokenness of your body and the blood that you shed. That as you were broken and beaten, It allows us to go free. Free to live significant, epic life in your hands. We love you and celebrate you for your gift and your sacrifice this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. The ushers are going to come forward. We're going to take communion a little differently than we have here in the past. They're going to pass the elements down the rows at the same time, the bread and the drink. And if you would take those as they go by and then hold on to them, because we'll take together after this first song. This is a symbolic ritual that is reserved for those that would call themselves a Christian, those that have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if that's you, then just encourage you to partake in this this evening. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup represents the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Whenever you drink it, remember me. Father, I can hardly put the words together to say thank you. It just seems like it doesn't suffice. But from the very depths of my heart and soul, I love you for what you did for us. We remember you in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take together.